When I was growing up, I loved to watch the movie uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And in this movie, you have five kids. They get golden tickets, and they're allowed to go in to this, this chocolate factory. What kid wouldn't want to go into a chocolate factory? But as you go through, you see that each of the kid, kids has something that is identifying them. For one, it's greed. For other, it's fame or fortune or gluttony. And you see what it is they look for for their identity. And this is true of all people. We're all searching for our identity. This is true of, of the world. You can see the world looks to the things of the world for its identity, to their jobs, or to money, or to wealth, or to riches, or to position as their identity. But it's an, also something Christians do. And where, as Christians, do we get our identity? Well, in Hebrews here, the apostle is answering that question for us. He's telling us where our identity comes from. He's telling us where we find our significance. And so as we come to this passage this morning, there's three things that I want us to see. First, we'll see the call of the Christian life. Second, we'll see the object of the Christian life. And finally, we'll look at the endurance of the Christian life. As we come to this passage, we see this, this word, therefore. And it's a loaded word. There's so much that comes behind it. Therefore. It's a transition word. But we have to answer the question, what is he transitioning from? Well, I think we can see this in two parts. We can see it as the book, first as the book as a whole. And know the themes of the book. One of the major themes of the book of Hebrews is that the author, the apostle, is warning Jewish Christians not to fall away, not to return to Judaism because it would be easier, because the church is, the Christian church is being persecuted and Jews are protected under Roman law, and so they're tempted to go back. And so he's saying, therefore, don't fall away. But the second major theme that I want to see from the book is why they don't fall away, and it's because Christ is supreme over all things. And the author traces this through the whole book. He begins by saying Christ is supreme over the angels. He says Christ is supreme over Moses. Christ is supreme over Aaron and the Levitical priesthood and all of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Christ is supreme. But we also see it in an immediate context. The therefore is followed by chapter 11. And in chapter 11 we see all these heroes of the faith. It's a chapter about faith. 11.1 begins by saying, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And it goes on, and he talks about the faith of Abel and how he offered a perfect sacrifice. And we see the faith of Enoch and how he pleased the Lord and walked with the Lord. And we see the faith of Noah and how he responded in obedience to the call to build an ark. We see the faith of Abraham and and how he trusted in the promises of God in faith. And Moses, who gave up the riches of the world for the riches that are found in Christ. And he goes on and talks about many others, about those who conquered kingdom, about those who are made strong in their weakness, about those who are suffering, who who are mocked, who are flogged and who are imprisoned. And because of all these things, 
He says, therefore. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness. And this is what he's talking about, isn't it? All these people from chapter 11 are this great cloud of witness. They witness to us in their lives. We are to learn and to grow from this witness. And so what do we learn? We learn that the Christian life is not solitary. It's not an endeavor we take on by ourselves. But there's a cloud of witness that we're surrounded by. Hebrews 11.4 tells us that Abel's blood speaks to us from the ground. We are to look to these cloud, this cloud of witness as an example. And this is true of all who come before us. This is why it's good for us to read commentaries. This is why it's good for us to read biography of Christian men and Christian women. Next Sunday, we'll celebrate Reformation Sunday, this day where we remember what Martin Luther did when he took a stand for the doctrines of the Bible. So it's good that we see people like Luther, like John Calvin, like Jonathan Edwards, like Samuel Rutherford, We're called to study these men and and know that they are part of this great cloud of witness. And so as we see this cloud of witness, we're called to run run a race. It says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I love the movie um, Chariots of Fire. And it's the story of Eric Liddell and He's, he was a missionary kid, and he would eventually be a missionary again, but for a time when he was in school, he ran, and he, he was an Olympic runner. And, and in talking to his sister at one point in the movie, he said this, I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. This is what we're called to do. We're called to run a race. And as we run the race, we feel God's pleasure. This is not imagery that is uncommon to scriptures. If we turn to 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25, it says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable Paul's telling us that we need to run with purpose. We don't run haphazardly or half-heartedly. We're to run with purpose. And what happens if you're a runner and you run half-heartedly or you train half-heartedly? You grow weak. And so when you try to run, it's hard. And oftentimes, if you give it up, then you just give it up altogether. And you stop running. And so we're called to run a race as to win the prize. We're not to run to get second or run to get third or fourth or fifth. We're run at, to run to get the prize. We're to run with purpose. But we're also to run to its completion. Paul tells us later in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, at, when he's coming to the end of his life, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. We're to run with purpose but we're also to run to the end. Can this be said of us here today? Can this be said of you? Have you fought the good fight? Are you fighting the good fight? Are you running 
the race? Are you keeping the faith? This is what we're called to. We're called in the Christian life to run a race. This is true of the people in Hebrews 11. They have fought the good fight. They have run the race. They have kept the faith. And if we are to run, then how are we to run? How do we know how to run the race? Well, first I want us to see that we're not the one who dictates the path, are we? When you run in a race, it's set out before you. You can't just run wherever you choose to. I think of Pilgrim's Progress, the book by John Bunyan, and he had a path to the celestial city. And whenever he got off that path, something bad always happened. When he took his eyes off heaven, something bad always happened. So we are called to run the race in a certain way. Well, how do we know how to run the race? Well, Fortunately for us, God gives us an instruction manual, doesn't he? He gives us his very word. And so we look at Abel and, and we see that we're to give true sacrifice to God. We look at Noah and we, we see that we're supposed to obey God. We look at Abraham and we see that we're supposed to rely on the promises of God. We look at Moses and we see that we're supposed to give up the riches of the world for the riches that we find in God. All of Scripture teaches us what it means to run the race, how we are to run the race. And guess what? This is not an option. This is not an optional guideline. We have to follow scriptures. We, if we do not have scriptures, then we cannot protect ourselves from the slings and the arrows of the evil one. So we, we know about how to run this race through reading God's word, but we also know how to run this race through prayer, through bringing communication with God. And we also know how to run this race through this, through the meeting of God's people through coming together and hearing the Word taught to us in Sunday schools and maybe on Wednesday nights and in, in this, in the preaching of the Word, do we know how to run the race? But as we run, it tells us, we are to lay aside every weight and sin which clings closely, which clings to us so closely. As I was thinking about, I love this description word, cling. It's, it's such a, a, it brings so many things to mind. And I, when I, as I thought about this word, I thought about a kid who is holding on to their parent. And it seems like kids, no matter how small they are, have like these vice grip hands, right? And they just cling to their parents. And they don't want to let go, particularly if they're scared or something like that, and they just cling on. And that's what sin is like to us, isn't it? It's just clinging on to us and grasping at us, and it doesn't want to let us go. But it also brought to mind, I don't know why it's, this is movie day in, in my sermon, but it brought to mind the Lord of the Rings, right, and Gollum. And Gollum wanted that ring. He called it his precious. And he sought for it throughout these books, and even to the point where when he finally gets it, when he's finally holding it, he doesn't even realize that he's falling backward into a lake of fire. When he finally gets his precious, when it's finally his, he's falling into a lake of fire. And isn't this true for us? This is what sin does to us. We hold on to it so tightly, and we cling to it, and we don't realize that it's dragging us into a lake of fire. And so we have to lay aside every weight and every sin that ensnares us. In the Roman world, when they would train for a race, they would, they would train in, in their clothes, and you would, you, I mean, you can imagine or picture the Roman clothing. They, some had togas or knee-length kind of, well, shirt skirts. I don't know how else to say it. 
but it would encumber their needs. And so when they would actually run the race, when it was time for race day, they would run naked. (laughs) They would run without any clothes. So that way, there would be nothing to ensnare or tangle up in their knees. And this is not a foreign concept to us, is it? We think about bikers or swimmers today, and they want to be as aerodynamic as possible. And so they put on form-fitting clothes and even shave their legs and shave their arms so that they're as aerodynamic as possible. They're getting rid, essentially, of those things that ensnare them. And I think these, these things that ensnare us, we can see in two parts. First, we see those things that may be permissible, but are not profitable for us. And each of us has to answer this question for ourselves. What are the things that we hold on to that maybe in and of themselves are not sin, but that we hold on so tightly and cling to that they become sins for us? You think an easy example is alcohol. Alcohol in and of itself is not a sin, but if, an, if you're an alcoholic, you should throw that thing aside because it'll weigh you down, it'll cling to you. But the other side of that, those things that ensnare us, is, is the sin which clings so tightly to us. These are outright and blatant sins that are clinging to us. And it brings to mind the life of David. And David, who was a man after God's own heart. And yet when he was on that roof and he saw Bathsheba, he looked down and sin gave birth in his heart. And what did this lead to? It led to his covening his neighbor's wife. It led to him committing adultery. It led to him murdering the, wife of, or the husband of Bathsheba. This is what happened when we let sin into our hearts. And so we have to lay aside every snare and every sin that easily entangles us. But we also have to know that it's a marathon, not a sprint. It is, is a marathon, not a sprint. And you don't train for a marathon the same way you would train for a sprint. We cannot rush it. We cannot ascend to some theological or spiritual level by just working hard for a short period of time. And we see this happen, don't we? We see people who come and they, they hear the things of God and they latch on to it. But, and they burn hot for a while. But then after a while they just kind of peter out. And they leave the church and they never come back. We have to look at the Christian life, the race that we're called to run as a marathon and not a sprint. Well, then how can we run the race? And this leads to our second point, our object of the Christian life. Verse 2 says this, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. As we run the race, Christ is our ultimate example. We see His example in His life, in His death, in His resurrection. He came, He humbled Himself, He took on human form, a human body, born of the Virgin Mary, but yet He was born without sin. In His life, He was tempted in every way that we are tempted, but He lived perfectly according to the law. He was never encumbered by sin. Like Noah, he was obedient, but he was perfectly obedient. Like Abraham, he trusted in the promises of God, but he never faltered in his trusting. Like Moses, he resisted the temptations of this world, but he did it perfectly. And like Abel, he shows us what a a sacrifice is, but he is the true sacrifice. 
And so he carried his own cross. He was mocked. He was tortured. He was beaten. He was condemned to die. And he suffered the wrath of God for us. And then he died and was buried. Yet on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and even now sits at the right hand of the Father. That's how verse 2 ends. It says, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is our example as we run the race. In chapter 11, we see all these people and all of them point to Christ. All the examples of, of faith point to the perfect example we have in Christ. All faith is founded on Him. And without Him, there is no faith. We cannot have faith. We cannot run the race apart from Christ. But not only did He run the race perfectly, it says He did it with joy. For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross he despi- and despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When Christ came to earth, he knew he would be rejected. He knew that he would be beaten. He knew that he would be killed. And yet, he took delight in doing the, the will of his Father. How could he do this? Why would he do this? We get a, a picture of this, or a reason for this, in his high priestly prayer, prayer in John 17, verse th- 3. He says, But I am coming to you, And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. This is why he did it, so that his joy may be fulfilled in us. This is why he came. This is why he endured the cross. This is why he despised the shame. Because he wanted his joy to be in us. How awesome is that fact? I love the hymn writer Augustus Toplady, he penned these words, O love incomprehensible that made thee bleed for me, the judge of all suffered death to set his prisoners free. This love is indeed incomprehensible that the judge of all, the judge of the universe would come and would shed his blood on our behalf, that he would come in order to set us free. If we believe this, which this is what the Christian life claims, this is what the running the race of the Christian life claims, how can we continue to live in our sin? We cannot remain unchanged. We cannot continue to cling to the sin that we love so dearly. We have a Christ. We have a, a God who for the joy set before Him came for us, and yet we continue to play the harlot. We continue to go after false gods. We set up idols in our hearts. As you hear me talk today, maybe your mind is going to some sin and you're like, and, and if you're anything like me, you're thinking, but not that. I don't want to give that up. That is too precious to me. And yet like Gollum, we are, it's dragging us down into a lake of fire. So we must look to Him. We must be in relationship with Him. And we must persevere until the end. Which brings us to our last point, the endurance of the Christian life. Verse 3 says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary 
or faint-hearted. The reality is that in this world, we will grow weary. We will grow faint-hearted. This should not be a surprise to you. You can look at our world and see the state it's in with, with the economy the way it's in. With You hear stories of even Haiti or different parts of the world where Christians are being persecuted for what they believe. But we can see this here, can't we, of people who have fall, fallen ill suddenly or who are suffering from long-term illnesses who are losing jobs or aren't sure what they're going to do for income. We will grow weary and we will grow faint-hearted. Paul tells us that we will not be perfect in this life. In Philippians 3, 12 and 14, he says this, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Even though there will be suffering in this world, and we will suffer and we will grow faint-hearted, we can press on to the prize. We can press on to glory. Not because we have done it in ourselves, but because Christ has done it for us. And so the apostle in Hebrews calls us to not grow weary. He exhorts us to not grow faint-hearted. And why can he exhort it, us to this? Because we can consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. No matter what you are going through, and I would never minimize the struggles of your life, no matter what you will go through in your entire life, it will never compare to what Christ has gone through for you. We are to keep our eyes on him. He is our ultimate example. Romans 8.18 tells us that the glory we have in Christ is not worth comparing to the suffering in this world. And if you're anything like me, you know the suffering that is in this world, and it's not even worth comparing. That's how great the glory is that we have in Christ. That's why Martin Luther can pin the, the, the words in a mighty fortress is our God. And though this world with devil fills should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. There are devils in this world, and they're threatening to undo us, but we do not have to fear them. For God has willed His truth to triumph through us. Jesus has conquered sin. He has conquered death. And because of this, we can endure to the end. Because we have a God who is even now enthroned. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. I'm going to tell you a secret. Jesus wins. Jesus has won. And so we can take comfort in that. We can rest in that. We are to trust and rest in Jesus on the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross despise the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As we've gone through this passage, we have seen the call of the Christian life. We have seen the object of the Christian life and the endurance of the Christian life. In a moment, we'll sing the hymn, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. And the first 
verse of that says this, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Brothers and sisters, this is the hope that we trust in. It is built on nothing less. You cannot allow it to be built on anything less than the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you do not know this hope today, if you have never turned to Jesus, then I urge you to turn to Him. There is no hope in the world. You can go to any manner of things and you will find no hope there. It is all empty. But if you do have this hope today, if you do claim the name of Christ, then brothers brothers and sisters, you cannot cling to your sin. You have to let it go. You have to trust and rest and cling to Christ, even as a child clings to their parents. So that's my prayer for us, that we would press on as if running the race, that we would keep our eyes on the prize, and that we would look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Dear most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you you have indeed sent your son that he indeed lived the life that we could not live that he has satisfied your wrath for us may we never forget that may we never cling so tightly to our sin but may we cling to you i pray all these things in jesus name amen if you would please